Welcome to What? It is a part documentary, part roundtable podcast with a sprinkling of competition. I'm your host, Ellie Main, and joining me every week, we have Chelsea Harfouche. Chelsea, what's up? Oh my God, can I tell you? Please do. Um, <laughs> I would love to. So I just learned today so many things about buying houses that are oh, insane. Okay. Uh, so a friend of ours, she was telling us about buying a house and it was wild as somebody who has never bought a house, which is me. She said that they have you have to write a letter. Like as if you're like adopting a child. You have to write yeah. a letter about like yourself oh, yeah. like, and be like, hi, it's me. I'd love to <laughs> live in this house. This <laughs> is what I would love to do. In a super competitive market, you have to be like, this is where I want to grow old and have my children. <laughs> Insane. Ins- I unhinge. I cannot. It's very weird. I cannot exist with this knowledge anymore. It's making me so upset. <laughs> Yeah. She said that trying to buy a house during this like experience was absolutely like painful. <laughs> that like yeah. I guess like the market in Austin has been a seller's market for a while and then the panini kind of accelerated that uh and that it was just wild. Places are going for a hundred over asking. I'm sorry, I just choked on my San Pellegrino. A <laughs> hundred over asking. Yeah. What does a sandwich have to do with this? <laughs> oh, okay. What? Okay. What? Look, listen. What is a panini? I'm, I, I'm honestly Asking. Oh, oh uh, the pandemic. Uh, we call it the panini uh, sometimes. <laughs> okay. Oh, I love to shit panic. <laughs> I didn't know, like, some sandwich is holding Hannah's house hostage or like. <laughs> Be careful. Also, <laughs> Connor also reminded me yesterday that there was like a point, you know how like we were all talking about how like we've become feral in the pandemic and yes. we're going to have to learn how to like reintegrate <laughs> into polite <Yeah>. society. <laughs> he reminded me, or he was like, hey, do you remember how like midway through the pandemic you started demanding that everybody call you Squeakwool? And I was like, no, <laughs> no I don't, I do I don't remember that. Apparently it happened. Why? You wanted to be know. named after a... Of a, after a kid's movie about chipmunks? Yeah. No, he was like, I like that just... it's not just one of the chipmunks, it's the sequel. You wanted to be called the sequel to Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. I, I simply wanted to be called Squeakwall. I had chosen Squeakwall. <laughs> oh my God. That could be like our squad name, like code names. Okay, but... no, I'm back in on this idea that I don't remember. <laughs> but I'm going to be squ- codenamed Squeakwall. Ellie, you can be chipwrecked. Thank you so much. That's <laughs> Colton, you're OG. I'm OG, but what about the road chip? <laughs> what the fuck? Is that one of them? That was the 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 one that came after Chipwrecked. Oh my god. <laughs> so okay, you know what? Since you're always Perfect. traveling to get away from our friendship, unsuccessfully, <laughs> obviously, since you're on this podcast. <laughs> You can be you can be road chip. Road Hell chip. yeah. Well, can I tell you about this very special episode that we have today? Yeah, please tell me. Well, well you already know, but I'm going to tell everybody else. Well, that, uh, this is my opportunity of the series to sit out and have someone play for host team. And that person is Colton Clements. Oh, and I'm so excited. Me? He communicated to us that he had a topic to share. And so he said, hell yes. Hell yes, brother. And here hell we are. Yeah. Would here you say, are. would you say, Colton? Colton, that you that you have something to say. <laughs> I have got something to say. Oh my gosh! Well, I can't wait to hear it. Oh, I can't so wait to hear. So how's this gonna work, Ellie? Like points wise? I think I'm gonna do the. <gasps> okay, don't worry, but... I'm not gonna be a dick about it. I'll be I'll be fair. Okay, of I'm course, trusting always. you on this chipwrecked. I'm... <laughs> Thank you, Squeakwell. <laughs> Thank you. 
Chip, what is the name of your topic? <laughs> <laughs> the name of my topic is, and I just came with the name like two minutes before, and Proud now I'm you. pulling up my notes so that I could remember what it was. It's an impressive story. I'm already impressed. Incredible. My topic is called Albert Einstein, the King of Comedy. Oh, is interesting. It about, is it about Jeff Foxworthy? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. Is he was he one of the kings of com- who are the kings of comedy? I don't know if there were I mean I there was a movie. It's subjective, isn't it? No, there's like there was a group cuz there was the original <laughs> <No>. kings of con <laughs> No, Ellie, no. <laughs> You're thinking of the king of queens. No, I'm not. Don't tell me what I feel. That's uh, Kevin the James. Kings of comedy was like a like a comedy group, like a oh. like a group. I just thought I, it was like I an accolade. Just... Okay. Aren't you guys about to feel bad? Because sure. one of these people is dead. Oh, egg on my face. <laughs> <laughs> the original kings of comedy <laughs> were... <laughs> so soon you are unraveling. I'm so hungover and then I had to host a baby shower. Uh, My brain is mush. The original kings of comedy, jokes on you, were Steve Harvey, that's right, man with big pants, D.L. Hughley, (laughs) the other one, Cedric the Entertainer, the entertaining one, and Bernie Mac, R.I.P. in peace in heaven, Mr. 3000. Oh, no. Yes. And then they made an original queens of comedy and then they made like the Latino kings of comedy. Comedy. So there have been kings of comedy. And then, of course, obviously, <laughs> Albert Einstein. Albert <laughs> Einstein, the king of comedy. Yeah. Well, we did a topic about how Albert Albert's brain was stolen after his death. Um, but I don't feel like it's about that. Is it about, like, him hanging out with the celebrities and stuff? Um, I mean, he hangs out with some celebrities, I guess. I don't oh, know. Oh, he sure do. Uh, yeah. But it's not um, about that. No, it's not about that specifically. Hmm. Did he, did he like, pursue stand-up comedy as a youth? <laughs> he did, actually. That's a fun fact. Oh, well, fact. then that's what I think it's about. <laughs> well, then, all right. You can think that. <laughs> I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Well, uh, Squeakwell, what's the, yeah. <laughs> what is the name of your topic? The name of my topic is The Great State Race. It, the Great State Race? Mm-hmm. Is it about the states all racing to see who could open up after the panini fastest? No, that would be depressing. Yeah. Because <laughs> it would be Texas saying, it's not real. <laughs> but to say, because there would be some, we have to be like, there were some states that never technically closed. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Is it about, is it anything political? There, okay, so I'm so glad you asked that, Chipwreck. Um, it is not a political topic, but there is a part of this that I'm going to touch on that is okay. political, and it is actually, and I am being 100% serious, a backdoor pilot to a future topic that I want to do. Wow. Okay. I like that. You got the Chelsea what universe going on here. Yeah, this is the extended school <laughs> universe. <laughs> Love to see it. Um, 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 is this Great about, state race. about an event of some kind? Yes. Oh. A tractor race, perhaps? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking yeah. states, state fairs, tractors. tractors. Oh, I see. I see. Thank you for explaining, like, your mind palace. It's an event. It was an event. Mm, is it a run? Well, you wouldn't do a topic about right? You hate running. I do hate running, but what do I like to do? Skate. Is it about roller skating? No, it's not about roller skating. Uh, I thought for a second that you just yelled, gay. And I was like, (laughs) 
What are you? <laughs> she loves to gay. Oh, cooking? No. I guess I guess uh, I should have said like movement wise. Like, what do I like to do? Dance, Pilates, body rolls. <laughs> I do like to do body rolls. All right, we've gone off the rails. Swim. I do like to swim, but no. Ah, uh, okay. I'm well, sorry. I, I just screamed yeah. at you, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna take a second here to calm down and let one of you start your topic. Well, actually, I get to choose, don't I? <laughs> um, let's hmm. Let's let's let Colton go. Yeah. Albert Einstein, king of comedy. All right, y'all ready for this? Yes! I'm ready. So this story begins on November 23rd, 1958. Oh. Los Angeles. The city of <laughs> angels. Hollywood. I yeah, I don't know about all that. But listen, November, November 23rd, 1958, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, they're at the top of their game. Okay. A year prior to this, I Love Lucy wrapped its original run, and they're about to start a new show. And uh, so Lucy and Desi, they're Hollywood royalty. Everyone loves Lucy and Desi Arnaz. I love Lucy. Great show. People love them. They're superstars. And what happens to superstars? They get roasted. Boom, roasted. And on November 23rd, 1958, at the Friars Club, there was a roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz that would go down in history. Now, the Friars Club, for their roast, they put together a bunch of different comedians to come in and talk about Lucy and Desi. They had Milton Berle there, who was famous, as I understand it. (laughs) They had uh, Art Art Linklater was there. Everyone knows Art Linklater. Yeah. And then also there was Harry Einstein, who is a comedian Um. and radio show host in Hollywood. He had been doing comedy over the radio for decades, Uh. like since the 20s. Now, Harry was known for his nickname, Parkia Carcass, which was, uh, <laughs> sorry, which was what? sort of... <laughs> Parkia Carcass. Harry Parkia Carcass Einstein. Parkia Carcass came from... One of his most famous characters he did was he did a lot of Greek dialect comedy. So oh, essentially cool. doing like a Greek voice and be like, hey, I'm Greek, I'm Parkia Carcass. Was he Greek? No, he was Jewish. No, it was 1958. <laughs> okay, first of all, people can be... What is happening? It was 1958... Hollywood, he was a Jewish gentleman and he was not Greek at all, but he did Greek dialect comedy. When you do dialect comedy, it means that you don't you don't usually speak that you know, do an impression, sort of. Quite frowned upon these days. I was gonna yes. say that's what I was I, trying to get at. Yeah, uh, also, I, do, I just wanna say you can be Greek and Jewish at the same time. That yes. is I don't know, I think we have to do some more research on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yes, no, uh Parkycarcus probably Harry Parkycarcus would probably not uh fly in twenty twenty. Wouldn't a mate wouldn't make it this side of the century. <laughs> His longest running show was uh, a spot on the Al Jolson show. So, you know, he wouldn't really be uh, be having a show flying. Uh, exactly. Al Jolson is uh, famous for being the lead in uh, The Jazz Singer, which was one of the first films with sound. But also uh, he does uh, a big scene in blackface in that film. Oh, cool. um, <laughs> okay, great. I mean, again, 1958, but also big yikes. So it's the roast of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Comedians are going up one after the other. They're fucking grilling them, you know? They're hitting them with the gags, hitting them with the jokes. The audience is loving it. And then it comes time for Harry Einstein's uh, performance. And he 
comes up and he knocks them dead. It's great. Really? The Los Angeles called... Times. I'm sorry. Do you think he called Lucille Ball a ginger? I hope so. I sincerely hope so in my heart of hearts. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> the crowd lost it. Nailed it. Um, Original king of comedy over here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Los Angeles Times would go on to say that that was Harry Einstein's greatest stand-up performance was at the roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. After performing, some of the other uh, comedians came up, took the stage, and they start shooting the shit. And one of them, uh, Milton Berle, I believe, asks, you know, Harry, why aren't you on primetime? You know, this guy's so funny. You know, what are you doing? You know, why, why, why aren't you on primetime TV, Harry? And Harry turns to Milton and he says, yeah, how come? <laughs> These were Harry Einstein's last words. <gasps> Harry Einstein immediately passed out in his seat, uh, suffering from a heart attack live on stage. Oh. What? At first, you know, for the first few seconds, everyone, you know, thought maybe it was a gag or something, sort of a joke. Mm -hmm. And Milton Berle uh, asks, you know, after once he realizes it's, it's serious, he asks if there's a doctor in the house. Uh, of course, the audience laughs, thinking it's oh still my gosh. part of the joke. Eventually, it becomes clear that this is not a joke. Uh, there was a doctor in the house. They took Harry Einstein backstage. The doctor had a pen knife on him, oh um, which he used to make an incision to attempt an open heart massage. Oh my um, gosh! Oh, whoa! Another doctor oh. in the audience began taking an electric cord apart to try and make some sort of makeshift defibrillator there behind stage. Oh my goodness. This was some real rough field medicine. Oh yeah. <laughs> Obviously, with this going on, the roast is kind of stopped dead in its tracks. Um, <laughs> oh no, you don't say. <laughs> Let's just keep going. <laughs> um, so one of the comedians to keep the audience calm or something asked Tony Martin, who was there, as the musical act to sing a song. Tony Martin's unfortunate choice of song was There's No Tomorrow. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lucille... He misunderstood and thought that they wanted him to sing like an appropriate song for the moment. <laughs> Don't worry, I got this one. I know just what this situation calls for. I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Lucille Ball took to the stage, came to the microphone, and threw tears all that she managed to say was I can say nothing Aww. she left the stage Desi Arnaz came to the stage and says this is one of the moments that Lucy and I have waited a lifetime now it's meaningless they say the show must go on but why <laughs> must it let's close the show right now by praying for this wonderful man backstage who's made laugh oh I was gonna say they really made it about them for a second there <laughs> yeah it's, that, that, the first half you know they really I'm like alright Desi yeah. fuck off <laughs> well, um, but then... I mean not to speak ill of the dead uh, although I do that all the time and will continue to uh, I, you know I had always heard that Desi Arnaz was like a fucking asshole. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, like, you, I, well, you know, he cheated on Lucy like all throughout their oh, yeah. marriage, and they eventually got divorced, and mm -hmm. he had a big like drinking problem, and wasn't very nice drunk, and so it would make sense that he would stand up and be like, "This is a real <laughs> bummer for a party I was looking forward to." Yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be about me, and this guy has to go and die. Well, I guess you haven't specifically said that he died yet, but I feel like it's well, they didn't he, open he... his they didn't open his chest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, he he did die um, shortly okay. afterwards. They were unable to <laughs> revive him or resuscitate him. Shocking. And uh, Harry Parkyakarkis Einstein died backstage at the roast Man. of Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz. That's absolutely bananas. His death was the front page news on the LA Times the next day. His funeral was attended by over 300 mourners. Aw, that's nice. Harry Einstein was survived by his wife, American actress Thelma Leeds, and his four children, Bob, Clifford, Chuck, and the youngest, Albert Einstein. Oh, uh, what? 
Albert Einstein was born in Beverly Hills, California, 1947. <laughs> Just a slightly different Albert than we were thinking of. Oh. Bet you didn't see it going this way. <laughs> okay, I really, honest to God, I really, for a second, embarrassingly thought that it was... That was that Albert? <laughs> And I realized out of that math doesn't make sense, but I thought this was like <laughs> your big gotcha moment, like that stupid spam email that used to go around where it was like the kid that would fight with this professor about whether that God was real. And then it'd be like, and that student was Albert Einstein. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it absolutely wasn't. And like, that's what I thought you were doing. Oh my gosh. Well, anyway. this is a case uh, where it absolutely was Albert Einstein, but maybe not that Albert Einstein. Oh, oh how anyway. much would it suck to be growing up in like the 60s and be named Albert Einstein. Well, oh, yeah. we, we might be getting into that. <gasps> okay, oh my God. Please go. <laughs> Albert Einstein was born in Beverly Hills, California in 1947. <laughs> his parents were heavily involved in show business as we've been over. His mother was an actress, Harry Parker Carcass Einstein, of course, stand-up <laughs> comedian. And this would pass down to Albert as well. Uh, in addition to growing up around future stars, he grew up around a lot of sort of Hollywood royalty. He grew up with the Dreyfus family, of course, who brought us Richard Dreyfus. Albert Einstein attended the Carnegie Mellon University, but Ooh. after one year, he dropped out to pursue his passion, stand-up comedy. Oh. Now, by the late 60s, <laughs> he's in his early 20s, Albert Einstein has gone on to become a regular appearance on late-night TV comedy programs. He would often perform stand-up on late-night shows in his trademark character of a neurotic, narcissistic showbiz insider. Basically, okay. he always he always crafted these characters who are like total and complete sort of assholes, and just like completely self-absorbed, completely self-involved. Okay. And that's sort of the joke is how turned off he is from everything else except his own ambitions. Okay. This character became a staple of his work and identity in comedy. And along with it, at the age of 19, Albert Einstein would legally change his name to <laughs> Albert Brooks. Oh. What? <laughs> now, does Are anyone know who Albert Brooks is? kidding me? Oh my! Wait, wait hang on. I'm me, losing my fucking that. mind right now. You're talking about the iconic writer, director, and star of the hit 1999 film The Muse. Chelsea, <laughs> a movie I watched I on could, HBO as a I child. I kiss at least you on times. the lips right now. Right? Holy <laughs> shit, Chelsea! You've seen The Muse. Muse. Well, I, unfortunately, that's the film I'm going about, to speak least about. You're talking about Nemo's dad? I'm talking about Nemo's dad. I'm talking about you think you can do these things, Nemo, but you can't. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This is the story of how Albert Brooks changed the comedy landscape as we know it. Dude. This man is and so And how funny. no one knows that. This whips. I, right. am so, I, am, I am so upset that I have to go second. <laughs> This is awful. Anyway, go ahead. This is terrible. Continue. I have a feeling that a lot of our viewers probably have no idea who Albert Brooks is outside of, oh, Finding Nemo, he was Marlin. Right. Mm -hmm. So here, well, we're going to watch gonna... the muse. They should educate themselves. <laughs> you, you should watch the muse. We'll talk a little bit about the muse. We'll get there. Yes. I, I, that was, wow. And, and of all of his movies for you've seen, for it to have been the muse, that feels extra special for some reason. 
Albert Einstein's comedy work was completely based around upending traditional comedic tropes. He was sort of one of the early postmodern kind of comic, all about like tearing up traditional tropes. So like one of his most famous bits is his ventriloquist act. This act was what sort of got him really famous and he'd perform on a lot of late night shows, but he would take the stage with his dummy as a ventriloquist, but he would make absolutely no attempt to like hide his <laughs> lip motions while speaking as the dummy. He was just, his mouth was just like going. Yeah. And that's the joke. It's a kind of like anti-comedy thing. Exactly. Um, and he would do things like he would just decide to take a smoke break and just drop the dummy just to the floor, not said, just like drop it there, take uh-huh. a quick smoke break, <laughs> take a few puffs, put it out, pull a dummy. He's like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll do a classic bit. You know, the dummy will drink water while he sings a song, you know, just like completely <laughs> the opposite of what you expect from the traditional ventriloquist act. People were just like, what the hell is going on? This doesn't make sense. And they loved it. Amazing. <laughs> His second comedy album, uh, I wish I could have written about the first, but I can't seem to find a copy. Um, but his second comedy album is called A Star Is Bought. It's centered around Albert Brooks uh, playing this narcissistic self-involved version of himself, doing absolutely everything he can to sell out to every <laughs> possible radio demographic just to become rich and famous and make a lot of money off royalties of uh, his comedy album. It includes skits such as him discovering and performing the missing lyrics to uh, Ravel's Bolero, um, uh, singing a song with a blues musician while trying to cheer him up to tell him a joke, you know, why are you so blue? And and even talking to country star Linda Ronstadt to discover how to use patriotism to appeal to country radio listeners. Albert Brooks' work in postmodern comedy would go on to directly inspire future postmodern comics, sort of like uh, Steve Martin, Andy Kaufman. Mm-hmm. So Albert Brooks, he's living it up in New York City. He's got a great comedic career. He's constantly on the rise. He's putting out albums. He's becoming such a name that in the mid-70s, he teamed up with one of his good friends, Lorne Michaels, to host a variety show for NBC that would be titled The Albert Brooks Show. The show was meant to be a collection of skits and comedy performances, primarily from the mind of and starring Albert Brooks, along with a host Mm -hmm. of other comedians. Albert ended up writing and directing six shorts for the show, but before the show ever aired, Albert had his eyes set on something bigger than network TV. He was beginning to enter conversations to try and jump into film from comedy. And so after spending all this time helping his friend Lorne Michaels develop The Albert Brooks Show, he eventually was like, listen, Lorne, I've got to leave. <laughs> he still wrote and directed six uh, shorts for it that, you know, he was like, hey, you can you can keep the shorts, you know, I'll still do this, uh-huh. um, but I'm not going to be able to uh, to host this, this comedy show for you. But, you know, why would you need me as a host? What if you had a different host <gasps> every week? He invented SNL. The Albert Brooks Show continue on NBC under a new name, Saturday Night Live. Oh what? my God. Hold I, I am <laughs> losing my shit. Oh my God. Gosh, I'm loving that you guys are loving this. This, this, this Albert is, Brooks trivia. There, this, you can't have this many twists. It's yet. too well, many you know, twists. Look at him I mean, go. I mean, yeah, fucking buckle up, Buttercup. Um, oh my god. This guy, Albert Brooks, is as we'll continue to learn, is basically the Forrest Gump of comedy. Like he is showing up everywhere through like these like influential moments in the industry and in media, and like making all and affecting all this change that like still we still feel today, and no one like most people never known about it. So the next year, nineteen. 19- 76, Albert Brooks would move back to Los Angeles where he was raised and mm-hmm. shortly after moving there he would land his first role in a feature film. He's playing a character named Tom who is the co-worker and sort of kind of not really love interest to Sybil Shepard's character in the Martin Scorsese film Taxi Driver. Wow, that's a good first role. Yeah. Scorsese would allow Brooks to improvise the majority of his dialogue in fact. So yeah, it's pretty cool, you know. He's, uh, he's killing it in LA. So after these successes in his career, he turned his sights
rights to direct. And in the late 70s, he got the green light from Paramount Pictures to make his first feature film, a 1979 mockumentary called Real Life. (laughs) Now, before we dive into real life, we're going to dive into a very quick little film lesson about Cinema Verite. I don't know if you guys know what Cinema Verite is. I do. You do. Cinema Verite, briefly, is uh, basically a filmmaking philosophy that strives to capture reality and truth. The idea sort of behind it is that the filmmakers involved would have as little impact on their subject as they possibly can, just filming them and seeing how they would cave um, just sort of an everyday life. An early example was PBS's show, An American Family. This is considered to be the first reality TV program. It aired in the early-ish 70s. Okay. The program followed The Louds, a family living <laughs> in Santa Barbara, California. And it was intended to chronicle the family's everyday life by integrating cameras and cameramen into their homes and being like, you know, just don't pay attention to them. You know, just ignore them. Just act natural. Right. But by the end you. of the... Yeah. But by the end of the show, they ended up <laughs> documenting the family's divorce and uh, the the family sort of fracturing and sort of falling apart. Whoa. And American Family did not get a season two. <laughs> now, Shocking. Albert Brooks, his first film, Real Life, is a direct parody of this program and American Family. But it's also oh. a satire of Cinema Verite in general. Cinema Verite, it, it strives to capture real life. But, you know, how true can you really get when there's cameras around you and stuff? Like, to, to right. truly capture real life, like, you can't have any of that because there's always going to be, even if you believe, even if it's like, I don't know, subconscious consciously there's you're always you're never going to be your true self whenever there's all these cameras and just all around you no matter how yeah. long they're in there sort of uh you know uh getting yeah. it's like there's no such thing as being able to like recreate reality exactly right. and that is the central theme to real life awesome <laughs> real life is a mockumentary that follows albert brooks who's playing himself as he sets out to produce a documentary that he hopes will capture the joys the sorrows and everything in between of the american family experience mm-hmm. and all of this is so that he's he's obsessed with awards and recognition his his goal with making the films like we'll win the oscar <laughs> and maybe the nobel peace prize too um <laughs> that's his his character's whole motivation he goes in he's like we've got this great technology so that you know these cameras that are compact and you know and and <laughs> People won't people won't even notice them. And his solution is he has these essentially these camera helmets that he has cameramen <laughs> wear, and they look like large diving suit helmets with like a big window in the front, and that's where the camera is. Nobody will and know. So, <laughs> nobody will know. So nobody will know. And you have these people looking like absolute lunatics running around this house with these big like diving <laughs> suit heads on, chasing after people, and like for the close-ups, getting really close under their face and stuff like that. Just completely natural you'll never notice they're there so good <laughs> throughout the course of the film albert brooks who's uh hoping for more drama so that he can win an oscar he starts pushing and prodding the family into different directions the wife comes on to him at a point and he kind of like lets that sort of play out see what happens and you know uh-huh. it, there's it, it all sort of culminates and you know he sets a house on fire eventually <laughs> he's manipulating them so he can chase this obsession you know with these awards and recognition he eventually loses his mind and, and becomes totally unhinged amazing an american family was the first reality tv program but reality tv as we recognize it today far before it ever existed was on full display in this film everything that this film does is is prophetic to how reality tv works now the producers that come in and 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 push people to do and say things they wouldn't say right and creating artificial drama reaction yeah yeah he essentially came in and, and predicted this sort of world i just find that totally brilliant of him awesome yeah, because he's playing this character that, like didn't really exist yet, but it gave us this glimpse 
into the modern day reality TV hell world that we exist in. Hell yeah. Real life was a critical success as long as your name wasn't Roger Ebert. And um, <laughs> the film was inspirational to a new generation of comedians, even being cited as a major inspiration for Nathan for you. Yes. Financially, it didn't do anything too crazy. It made around $300,000. It did generate enough interest, however, for Columbia Pictures to walk in and say, hey, Albert, we'll give you your next V. Yes. And so in 1981, Albert Brooks released Modern Romance, a film starring himself and Catherine Harold. Uh, spoilers, all of his movies star himself. Okay. And as the tagline of the film Why says, they? Yeah. The tagline of the film says that it's about a couple who are, quote, so madly in love with each other that they broke up. Okay. Modern Romance is a satire of love, relationships, and especially jealousy. And it has, I'm telling you right here, right now, the greatest quaalude scene in all of film. You can take Wolf Whoa. of Wall Street, throw it in the trash. This movie's got a better Quaalude scene. Albert Brooks plays Robert in Modern Romance, a man we follow as he tries to win back his love throughout the film. He's a film editor. A lot of his films also sort of skewer sort of Hollywood sort of set dynamics yeah. as well. Um, and he's a film editor working on a crappy science fiction film. And uh, everything in his life just feels absurd to him. Have you guys seen Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah, yeah. He's a very much proto sort of Larry David is okay. you know um, so we follow him through this movie he's trying to win back his love but he's not after her because he has this, these grand notions of love or destiny because they're perfect each other which all these other rom-coms you know lead us to believe for their characters he's pursuing her because after losing her he has no direction in his life he's pursuing right. her so that he can feel some sense of control in his life that's spiraling out of control it's the anti-rom-com oh my gosh amazing Columbia Pictures they were in love with the film until it uh -oh. came back from its first test screening. Oh no. <laughs> and it got these abysmal critiques. People were saying things like, I don't know, this guy seems to drive a Porsche. Why is his life so bad? And stuff like that. It was, it was oh, a lot God. of sort of some silly comments. And I hate even saying this, but you know, a lot of stuff that was like, well, what it comes down to is this movie wasn't for a general audience. Right. Because it's inherently taking the status quo for these types of films and just shaking them up, breaking parts. He's not supposed to be a like character. In fact, by the end of the film, um, when he ends up with uh, uh, light spoilers, ends up with with a woman at the end of the film, and, and that's sort of panning out, and it's <laughs> and it's doing like this grand music, and it's like a happily ever after. And all I can think is like, yeah, he's still her. Um, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so he's playing this totally batshit character, and, but it plays on all these rom com tropes, and it's it's you know the the inverse of that. And this film was a huge critical success. Many people consider it to be his best film. Enter my favorite Albert Brooks film, his next film. Lost in America. Oh. And this film is probably still, in a lot of ways, the most prescient in terms of what it's about. Uh-huh. Lost in America, and this isn't a hot take, this isn't like a, ooh, well, you could read it. This is from the horse's mouth from Albert Brooks. <laughs> Lost in America is a satire about boomer entitlement, the pursuit of the American dream, and whether or not that dream actually exists. And how boomers basically fuck up everything they touch. Because um, they have no idea how reality really works. Lost in America, Beautiful. it follows a married couple played by Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty from Airplane. After missing out on a promotion at his ad agency job, the couple decides to sell their home and all of their assets to buy a Winnebago and travel <laughs> off the country living off their nest egg. Over oh, the course man. of the film, the characters make up a lot of allusions to Easy Rider, uh, which Albert Brooks frames in this film as the ultimate boomer fantasy. You know, because... <laughs> 
<laughs> it was Easy Rider was a 19, a late 60s film, a counterculture sort of film. You know, it has Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper smoking pot and doing coke and on motorcycles traveling across the country. And throughout the course of this film, this is what Albert Brooks is always framing. The characters always talking about the film. He's like, this is what we're going to do. We have our bundle of cocaine, which is our, you know, $300,000 nest egg or whatever. And we uh-huh. got this Winnebago, which is which is our sort of motorcycle. And we're going to travel the, travel the country and see and see America and all this sort of stuff. And every step of the way, they're getting themselves into trouble. They're fucking things up. I can't express to you guys how hard this movie slaps. It's so freaking <laughs> funny. I wish I could talk so in depth about all of his movies um, because they're all really great to dig into. But I'm just going to kind of brush through some highlights of these next couple. Hell yeah. Defending Your Life. This is another great one. This one's on HBO Max right now, I believe. This is a film about him shedding the egomaniacal asshole character he's always played up until this point and allowing himself to be more vulnerable and human because this is a film about a man played by Albert Brooks who (laughs) dies suddenly and is now in the afterlife and has to go on trial for his life to determine where he goes after this. He's sort of in a limbo. Damn, okay. And this film was a breakdown of like all of his character that had come for it. It's got Meryl Streep and Rip Torn. It's great. And uh, it has inspired a lot of afterlife films that have come since, most recently being Disney Disney Pixar. Disney Disney Pixar's. I wish they had changed their name to Disnar. Disnar would be a great name. Um, but it's most recently um, affected a film by Pixar recently called Soul, uh, which oh, contains yeah. a lot of similar themes that are going on in Defending Your Life. The creative team behind Soul has even acknowledged that Defending Your Life had an impact on film. But they've also said Pete Docter, who is the direct one of the directors of Soul and the director of Monsters, Inc. And um, Up, I think he also did. But um, he's he's been at Pixar since the beginning. And he said that Pixar, since the very start since Toy Story has often looked to Albert Brooks's films for inspiration and for its comedic voice. That's awesome. And it was this love for Albert Brooks films where they, the reason they pursued him for Finding Nemo. Oh, that's awesome. That's very that's cute. Really, it's very like heartwarming and sweet and yeah, makes me happy. Yeah, it's fresh. That's how we got Marlon. Yeah. Oh, uh, so neurotic fish. <laughs> yes. Yes. So at this point, uh, Albert Brooks has three films left in his career that he's going that he writes and directs um they would be considered by most to be sort of an increasing decline which isn't unfair but i still think there's a lot of great things about each of them his next film was a film called mother which starred debbie reynolds who died recently in the past year or two no yeah he plays a writer who goes back and starts living with his mother to try and you know find inspiration for like his next book and stuff it's a story about parents and their children that sort of relationship how you love them you hate them all that sort of stuff it's got a lot of funny moments his next film after that was The Muse. Yes. Chelsea, I think you should tell us about The Muse. What is The Muse about? Wow, this is highly irregular. Uh, <laughs> in a in a podcast that always obeys the, its own internal rules. So The Muse is a movie, he doesn't play himself, but he plays like essentially an archetype that is like an Albert Brooks archetype. So he's a really successful screenwriter who feels like he's lost his edge. And then every other famous director is in this movie, like, like, oh my god, Ellie, it's about to happen and it's completely organically. Titanic? Titanic! <laughs> what's, uh, god, what's oh, his James name? Cameron. Yeah, the, oh, James Cameron. James Cameron plays himself. So does Martin Scorsese. As, as does Martin Scorsese. James Cameron plays himself and he approaches the muse, the titular character, about making a sequel to Titanic and she's like, I just think you should stay away from water. And he's like, I got it. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, so basically like a bunch of his LA buddies are like, no, the thing is, is that there's a real life muse. And if you can get her to take you on as a client, then all of your like creative successes will start coming. So she, he meets this woman who claims that she is a muse. She has what I now realize is uh, the blueprint for my ideal life, which is that all of her clients just pay her like astronomical fees. He puts her up in like the four seasons. He uh-huh. buys her everything that she wants. And then she just sort of tells him to co like vaguely do things that will then lead to inspiration. <laughs> Incredible. It's a, a, you know, a satire, a send up of the Hollywood machine. And also mm-hmm. how stupid the commodification of creativity, I guess, is like inherently absurd. Uh huh. I love that movie. It's very strange. It's very and I guess strange. according to Colton, one of his weaker films, but damn, does it have a lot of cameos. It has a lot of like, oh, yeah. Albert Brooks called everybody in his uh, iPhone contacts. Yeah. yeah, he called in all his buddies. You summed it up better than I could have. The muse is wild. <laughs> yeah. And and just the ending, I won't say anything about it, but just like the last like 30 seconds are just so... It's a choice. It's a choice, but I, I kind of love it though, because it's just like, oh my God, this never ends. It's, it, it's just so wild. I don't know. I won't say anymore, but it's... <laughs> okay. it's it's Good. great. I Do love all of his movies. Uh, again, I will not spoil the muse. But what I will talk a little bit about, this is uh, to start uh, on the wrap up, his mm-hmm. final film to date that he's directed. Okay. His last film to date, directing wise, is 2005's Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Oh. Ooh. Go on. Feels like Islamophobia a was so high post 9-11 that theaters did not want to carry the film. Sony Pictures, who produced the film even, after it was shot and done, said, this film's too hot, take it somewhere else. Wow. (laughs) Eventually, Warner Independent picked up to release the film. The film released only in 110 theaters nationwide. Wow. Whoa. All because the word Muslim was in the title of the film. While it's not perfect, the entire idea of the film is about American willful blindness to other cultures and identities. Basically, in this film, Albert Brooks plays himself once again, uh-huh. and he has been tasked by Fred Thompson, um, who is an actor and was an actual U.S. senator, to travel to India and Pakistan and find out what makes them laugh. Oh my god! Essentially, um, so what this film is, what this film ends up sort of skewing, and again, it's not always perfect, but the idea behind it here is how we go to these other cultures and places, and we try to force them to like our American product. Yeah. All through the mm-hmm. film, they've sent Albert Brooks and he's performing in India. And there's even a great scene where he does his classic ventriloquist bit from like the 70s to a, a stony faced Indian audience. <laughs> they don't get it. They don't think it's funny. <laughs> they don't like it. And after it's all done, he's just like, well, maybe the lights weren't bright enough. You know, ne- we'll need a bigger stage for the next show. Brighter lights <laughs> and stuff. He, it's not attempting to to come to their level and understand them in any way. No. And that's sort of what he's skewering. And, and that's so good. I don't know if it's ironic. But it, it's to me just like the whole fact that no one even wanted to touch this film just because it had the, the word Muslim in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, there's definitely an irony there that yeah, it's it, like exactly what he's saying is that we are not understanding on purpose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since then, Albert Brooks hasn't written or directed. Who knows why? I wish I knew why. I recently found out through his website that I contact and write a letter to his PO Oh box, my I'm gosh. Gonna, I'm going to ask him why. I'm also going to ask him for a photo. Wouldn't um, that be the ultimate what comeback? That would yeah. be so powerful. I think at that point you would win the season. I don't know what that would mean for like the... We both have to get a contest. tattoo that Colton designs. <laughs> yeah. There we go. I'll give you that right now. If you can get a personal letter from Albert Brooks, I will let you design a tattoo for me. 
I don't know if you want to say that because uh, I will let you design uh, an Albert Brooks themed tattoo for me. <gasps> okay. Okay. The stakes they got higher. <laughs> Chelsea, would you get a muse tattoo? Yes. It can't be like huge, but like yes. <laughs> what if it was just what if it was just like the like typeface of the logo? <laughs> just the, the muse. <laughs> As of like last week, I've seen not only all of Albert Brooks' movies, but all the films he's acted in. Period. I've seen. I've consumed all wow. the Albert Brooks media I can get my hands on. This is some research. He's done many, many, many voice spots on The Simpsons, including the villain of The Simpsons movie. He was in the Little Prince Netflix adaptation a few years oh, back. Had a small role I in that. that Delightful movie. movie. Le Prince. I love that movie. It's I hope so you're great. gonna. I hope you're gonna reference my favorite Albert Brooks acting only role. Oh, and what would that be? I'll give you a hint. The real hero and a real human uh-huh. being. Of course, you're referencing the film Drive. Albert Brooks' yeah. villainous role human in being. Drive. And a real human being. And a real human being. And he's also appeared in one of my favorite roles of his was a James L. Brooks film called Broadcast News starring, um, God, I always get her name, Holly Hunter, who I love. I always get her yeah. mixed up with Helen Hunt, though. She's um, that tiny one, right? Holly Hunter's yeah. tiny and she's got the voice um, and she's in The Incredibles and she's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, she's Mrs. Incredible. That movie in general will just like, will just like tears. It's so good. It's so cute. It's so, just so good. Check out Broadcast <laughs> News, everyone. So great. He's got rolls on rolls on rolls, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory, The Secret Life of Pets, A Most Violent Year, Out of Sight, This is 40, Terms of Endearment, Concussion, oh, oh. Private Benjamin, Dr. Doolittle. Damn. Dr. Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy vehicle or yes. the Robert Downey Jr. vehicle that looked absolutely oh. abysmal. I wish it was the Robert Downey Jr. one, which I saw in theaters drunk off my ass. No, you um, didn't. Oh, I did. I was so drunk in that movie. I had a great time. So I'll uh, wrap this up by uh, talking briefly about the last sort of major creative thing that Albert has done. Uh, he wrote a book, a novel called 2030. I have a copy of it right here. I have <laughs> not started it yet. But now I will begin. <laughs> Chapter one. <laughs> oh my <No>. god. <laughs> and this, I shall finish my topic with a quick, complete reading. Uh, it's called 2030, the real story of what happens to America. Um, and it's interesting because exactly that's what I'm this this book is about to be real life as well, I believe. In fact, I'll prove it here. In let's nine read. Years? Let's yeah, it could be. Let's read Amazon's little okay. blurb that they have on it. My heart stopped when you said let's read, but I can deal <laughs> with an Amazon. <laughs> June 12, 2030 started out like any other day in memory, and by then memories were long. Since cancer had been cured 15 years before, America's population was aging rapidly. That sounds like good news, but consider this. Millions of baby boomers with a big natural Ugh. predator picked off were sucking dry benefits and resources that were never meant to hold them into their 80s and beyond. Young people around the country simmered with resentment towards the olds and anger oh, at babe. the treadmill they could never get off of just to maintain their parents' entitlement programs. <laughs> Sounds a little... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the man um, is a prophet. Yeah, I think he might be a prophet. <laughs> um, and then, of, and then of course, it's about a the film that goes on to be about a, a massive earthquake devastating Los Angeles, this huge disaster, and the government being unable to respond, always teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, and it <laughs> plunges America into chaos with refugees oh. and billionaires, presidents and revolutionaries all struggling to find their way in this new America. So this was um, written in two. This was written ten years ago. This was written in twenty ten. Yes. Uh, 
I'm so happy for you guys for humming on this because this was, you know, sort of like a love letter for me to Albert Aww. Brooks and just kind of how I love him. But I guess some of the wet elements for me are just like he, like I said before, he was kind of the Forrest Gump of the film industry. He's like yeah. showing up in all these places, you know, helping SNL get started, showing up in Scorsese's early movies. Even even going back to his father has to, you know, like make a splash dying on stage in front of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. There's no end of programs and comedians who have cited Albert Brooks as like, whether it's Nathan for Curb Your Enthusiasm, Tim and Eric love him, Uh, uh, Nathan Fielder's spoken about him, Dimitri Martin, if you care about him, was inspired by Albert Brooks. Uh, His influence is (laughs) just like (laughs) everywhere. And and I feel like he's an underrated figure, influential figure in modern comedy as we know it. And that is my story, Albert Brooks. Oh my goodness. I mean, I wrote so much down that like... at some point, I was like, it, this doesn't make any sense to ascribe our normal pointages to, uh-huh. to, to your stories. Blackface minus five. Just going to start off. <laughs> start off with that. Of course. Naturally. Um, <laughs> naturally. I mean, the, the reveal after reveal after reveal. Just incredible. Uh, put open heart massage. Ew. <laughs> um, <laughs> I put cinema verite. Fancy. Colton's given me a film list. I wrote that down. I put lost in America. I want to watch that. Suck it, boomers. Suck it, boomers. Then I did a little picture of, of Marlon from Finding Nemo. And so all that is to say, I mean, got Titanic in there. There was so much. All You're that is to say. Oh my God, Titanic. And it was natural too. I just, I natural. just realized, oh my God. I know. And that, you know, that is part of, apparently part of the lore of our podcast is that all yeah. things start and end with Titanic. All That's that is great. to say, Colton, I have given you 18 points. Hey, oh my God. thank you. Let's dive in. Let's just dive straight in. Um, Let's talk about this great state race. As a quick aside, which not just like it is a side, but like I've written this in my notes to be like quick aside at the beginning for fun. (laughs) You know how you know how Connor and I have now have been watching and have now completed watching the entire like fast series of films. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was incredible. Uh, I would do it again. 10 out of 10. 100 out of 10 would recommend. (laughs) One thing that I cannot believe they have done in the Fast and Furious movies and then kept doing multiple times across multiple Fast and Furious movies is they have an event that the main characters attend in the desert called Race Wars. Uh huh. And and nobody thought that that was like a problem. (laughs) Guys, we gotta gotta go to the Race Wars. I remember. That's like the first or the second one, right? Yeah, but then they do it again. They go in like Fast 6, I think. Or I'm so sorry. Fast and Furious 6. Let me get the name right. (laughs) They're like, oh, you know, we have to find so-and-so. That's like, well, you know what this means? And they're like, Race Wars. And I'm like, I'm begging y'all to stop saying that. You have to find a different name, guys. (laughs) You're going to have to find a different game. But luckily, my topic is not about race wars, either race war. Um, But is it about stealing truckloads of GD players? Honestly, it could be the upcoming plot of one of the Fast and Furious movies. Because the thing that I like to do, Ellie, is yeah. drive. Uh-huh. Yes, this is true. I do. So picture this. It's November 1971. Am I me again? Yeah, you're you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
And you're alive because it's 1971. And that's how time works. Don't tell. <laughs> Don't tell. Oh, my God. Um, you're on a family vacation in America. And okay. you're bulling around in, like, your, like, wood-paneled station wagon. Cute. It's November 1971. Therefore, Cher's iconic chart-topping hit, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. Gypsies, <laughs> Tramps, and Thieves is, like, oh, on, the, it's on the AM, FM radio. Okay. And Turn it up. Life is good the sun is shining and all of a sudden out of fucking nowhere a ferrari daytona overtakes your father on the highway and it Mm. is just ripping through this highway like a speed demon and then you see three more cars speed past you trying to take over this ferrari daytona although spoiler alert they will not because he later wins this race this unsanctioned coast-to-coast only semi-legal street race that is called the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash, shortened by history to simply the Cannonball Run. Oh my God, the Cannonball Run is real? Yes. So the Cannonball Run, which as I'm sure Colton knows, was immortalized in a 1979 movie is actually was a real thing. Okay. Wow. The first Cannonball Run uh, or Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash, naturally. <laughs> was actually in May of 1971, but it wasn't a true race because there was only one participant or right. like one participating <laughs> team. In a nutshell, the Cannonball Run is a race where you drive from New York to California. Well, okay, okay. So it's like 2,800 miles. Whoa. Or for Ellie, like double kilometers. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Traditionally, you start from the Red Ball Garage in New York City, and we all know where that is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And then you get all the way over to the Portofino Hotel in Redondo Beach, which is near Los Angeles. So the first one was conceptualized by magazine writer and auto racer named Brock Yates. And he teamed up with a writer and editor, Steve Smith, who wrote for Car and Driver. And they just did it to like basically to write a story where they were like, what if we drove from New York to Los Angeles and we did, you know, like we documented the whole experience. So they called it this whole thing. And this, I think, is like the interesting, I'm hoping, a backdoor pilot to a future wet topic. Like, so it was 1971. And so something that was happening in the 50s and 60s was the development of what we know now as like the modern U.S. highway system, like the interstate system. Oh. So if you think about it, you know, cars kind of were invented at the beginning of the 20th century. By the 50s, because of like the post-World War II economic boom, almost every family had a car. Then you have the rise of the suburbs. So then you necessitate an efficient means to travel both like intercity and city to city. So the U.S. highway development system is, depending on who you talk to, if you're talking to these guys who made an entire fucking race about it, (laughs) it is an absolute like mechanical and infrastructure marvel. Okay. Because, you know, the United States, she big, right? She she big, yeah. She's a very big country. So to basically create a gridded system where you connect almost every major major city in the country, including like, I don't know if you, have you ever driven either of you on, um, I believe it's I-70 in Colorado? I couldn't tell you for sure. Maybe. Okay. I've, I've been there once and it's possible I was on that road. I-70, I-70 goes throughout more than just Colorado, but it goes through the Rocky Mountains. Ooh, pretty. I drove it for the first time over Christmas because we went to the Rockies over Christmas 
it is a mechanical marvel. That drive was incredible. I had never experienced anything like it. You are literally driving up and down these really steep grades in the middle of mountains. Like it is cutting through mountains. There are mountains and gorges on either side of you. It was, it was stunning. I told Connor, I was like, hey, like not to get sappy on Maine, but like driving this makes me feel like a small animal in a large ecosystem that like I barely understand and I don't get to interact with as like a city dweller. And he was like, no, I get it. And uh, (laughs) so, so uh, you might feel that way. And some of that is true. You might also feel that the US interstate system is fairly controversial. And you might be right there because there were a series of free, what were called like freeway or highway revolts beginning in 1956 and going up through, I mean, really there's no end date. There are still sometimes freeway revolts, including like a time where in Houston, they like took over the freeway. It's also the protest routes of like, if you remember during the uh, civil rights protests last year, some of which were occurring in Austin. Do you remember when they took over I-35 and they were walking down the freeway? That has its roots in the freeway revolts in the civil rights movement. And it's because say you're a white city planner in the 60s and you need to decide what part of town is going to essentially be demolished to become a freeway. To put a big highway through it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to buy out all those houses and you have to basically eradicate whatever that city street or whole neighborhood is to create a raised or lowered highway and then all of the access roads, all of the ramps. Do you think that you're going to pick the affluent white neighborhood or do you think that you're going to pick the less affluent or sometimes poverty stricken black or brown neighborhood? What do you think? I've got a feeling which one they pick. Yeah, I think you can probably guess which ones they picked. So that's why actually one of my favorite sort of stories, because I'm I'm not going to get into this super deep. If you want a quick visual representation, since this is a visual medium, it's a podcast. Look at the city of Baltimore, which I've never been to. But after reading about this, I went and looked. Baltimore was a site where there was huge freeway revolts led by an activist named Barbara Mikulski, who later became a congressperson and a senator. Hell yeah. She rose to prominence in politics by leading the freeway revolts in Baltimore, and they were successful. If you go look at a picture of Baltimore, you will see that none of the highways that are in the city connect. They all just stop in random places in the city. Wow. As opposed to like probably the city that you live in when you're listening to this, if you live in a a major city, you probably have kind of like a spider web of freeways that intersect and overlap each other so that people can hop from one freeway to the other and get to wherever they're going. Baltimore, they all just sort of terminate in random places in the city. They were all meant to connect in the same way. And because of the work of tireless activists uh, like Barbara Mikulski, who said, you're not going to destroy our neighborhoods to do this. Uh, They do not. Amazing. So, So that's my tiny little backdoor thing. That's that's what's happening in the cultural moment when Brock Yates comes up with the cannonball run. Okay. He is pro highway system. He thinks it's great. As a a noted car enthusiast, (laughs) he really likes it. And as a white dude, he's like, this doesn't apply to me. This is not hate against Brock Yates. I'm saying that like he wasn't thinking about it. I don't know how he feels about it now looking back at time past. He's like in his 80s. But at the time, that was not what his concern. Right. The other part of it was a protest. So 
again, if you think about it, cars are invented at the beginning of the 20th century. By the 50s is when pretty much everybody has a car. So before that, it was real lawless land, right? You had a car <laughs> and you were fooling around. It was like a, having a skateboard. There's no skateboard yeah. rules. Like you just, <laughs> you just ride your skateboard. There was no car <laughs> rules until they started making a highway system. And then they were like, oh, a highway allows you to drive uninhibited by pedestrian traffic or just the general like infrastructure of like a tight city which means that people can go as fast as a car can go that can be potentially very dangerous so in like the 60s is when you really start to see traffic laws and as you can imagine by basically any sort of like restrictive law that has come into vogue either historically or in your lifetime people hated it and (laughs) it was just another version of like the freedom isn't free I'm an American you're not gonna tell me I can't drive my car as fast as my car can go so like <laughs> uh, like speed limits like people were just like something that we like take for granted is just sort of like necessary and regular now people yeah. were like how fucking dare you tell me how fast I can drive on a road I pay for Mr. Which, like, government whatever. Mr. <laughs> government so in protest of these laws Brock Yates and Steve Smith proposed the cannonball run and they're like we're gonna see how fast we can go from New York to LA whoa they tricked out a custom Dodge sportsman van they named it the moon trash too hell yeah and it was yates steve smith brock yates's son brock yates jr and another dude named jim williams because this is like a multi-day drive right yeah for so sure. yeah so uh what you do is to avoid having to like take time to sleep you get a team of people and you just take turns driving oh, okay so that's how it was like a collaborative team right so they do it the first time in may they write about it in car and driver it's immediately like a huge hit magazine article which sounds weird to today but like yeah happened thing (laughs) yeah that was a thing huge hit in the november 1971 issue so then when they see all these people kind of responding to it they're like oh well let's fucking do it again so they have another one in november 1971 then again in november of 1972 again in april of 1975 and then the last official cannonball baker sea deciding sea memorial trophy dash was in (laughs) april fool's day 1979 the 1975 one set the first world record or not the first world record but it set the world record at the time for that drive uh-huh. which was 35 hours 53 minutes averaging 83 miles per hour which Whoa. was real fucking fast yeah. In, uh, hell in, yeah hell yeah the overall record for official cannonballs is from the April 1979 cannonball run which was 32 hours 51 minutes Whoa. for an average speed wow. across the whole thing of 87 miles per hour <laughs> uh, and it was in a Jaguar XJS. Hell yeah. Yes. So obviously this was like a huge iconic thing. People loved it. Cops hated it because Wait, what? Since the, the only rules were that you had to start at the garage in New York and end at the hotel in LA. There were no other rules. Incredible. So things like whether or not you stopped to sleep, how you like tricked out your car, any of those things, that was all up to you. That's why people would work in teams so they didn't have to stop for anybody to rest. Several cars would outfit themselves with like extra or extended fuel tanks uh-huh. so that they wouldn't have to stop as frequently to refuel. Amazing. Um, Some Mad and, Max shit. Yeah, absolute like Mad Max shit. And Yates and, and Smith, they did tell people during these sanctioned events, they said, we can't tell you not to speed. We can tell you <laughs> that it's illegal to speed and that if you get caught speeding, that that will slow you down because you'll have to take the time to get, you know, a ticket and a citation from an officer. But uh-huh. You know, beyond that, it's not against the rules. As you've already heard, people.
people were driving like absolute madmen and women. Crazy. Just tearing up these freshly paved interstates. <laughs> so those were the four official cannonball runs. But there have now been numerous just unofficial cannonball runs because a cannonball run is when you do this. And since That's it's a time it challenge, you don't have to wait for an official race. You are just trying to beat whatever the current best is. Right. It's like the Kessel Run in Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Can you? How fast can you do the Kessel Run? Uh, I wonder if it was, I mean, that was in the 70s. I wonder if it was, you know, inspired by the Cannonball Maybe. Run, which was like a big part of like 1970s culture and spawned, as you know, Colton, maybe I'll hand it over to you if you know anything about it. Uh, there was a film called The Cannonball Run. Yeah. And it had a sequel. And all I know is one of them introduced Jackie Chan to American audiences, I believe. That I is true. One. I believe that the movie Cannonball Run was written by Yates because he started working on a script for it basically as soon as that article ran. That's some real pussy pussy energy. Yeah. The Cannonball Run, the 1981 action comedy film that, like Colton said, introduced Jackie Chan to American audiences. It was written by Brock Yates. Oh. Okay. And wow. it's funny because he was scooped several times by other scriptwriters who were also immediately inspired by this story but he was really mad about it because he was like but, but it was it was mine <laughs> I did it I did it but he was like the last <laughs> one to make a movie but Aww. also his movie is maybe the most famous so <laughs> so he did win that yeah so he did win in that say in that way so the Cannonball Run Challenge just like Colton said like the Kessel Run is just when you try to beat the current best time the current best time as of right now as of recording is 25 hours 39 minutes which is unthinkable a top speed in that run was 170 miles per hour at an average speed of 110 miles per hour. Oh my God. And that- How do you know? But this is illegal, right? That's what I'm saying. So like, it's when I said semi-legal, it's like, it's not illegal to drive from New York to Los Angeles. That's perfectly legal. It is illegal to drive 110 miles per hour, which is why, like I said, like cops do not like the cannibal, like law enforcement, (laughs) politicians in general do not like the cannibal run. I mean, I don't think it's like popular enough now in like the 21st century for it to be like, you know, they're going to make like anti-cannonball run, you know, right. commercials. But like, yeah, no, they don't like it. Like you're encouraging people to drive as fast as possible. I think it's really fascinating because again, since there are no real rules about it, it has like led to, you know, people making some really interesting like innovations in car. Uh, uh, in, so In car. <laughs> in, in car. One of the things that I learned, I didn't even know was a thing. Obviously people use like police radio and like uh. radar scanners because, you know, you don't want to get pulled over going 170 miles per hour right you might like not be allowed to continue driving your car at that point i do think that like over a certain amount over the speed limit you're like in more trouble yeah i feel like once you hit like 120 they're probably like all right you're like you're coming with us like that was way too fast (laughs) yeah car is a deadly weapon at that point although i will say i mean i have allegedly allegedly because not everybody knows this about me but i drive a performance car (laughs) oh my god it is the love of my life Ever since I was very young, I've always wanted a muscle car, and I finally have one. It's a Dodge Challenger RT. Uh, It's got a hammy, and she can go pretty fast. When Connor's dad first saw my car, he said, Chelsea, I'm going to level with you. This is a really stupid car. (laughs) I was like, thank you. 
Oh my gosh. Challengers Pink. are great. Whatever. The rare times that we go on, like, say, like the toll road, like the toll road out by Austin that takes you to San Antonio, I think the top speed limit there is 85, uh-huh. which means that you can pretty safely go 95. Usually there's not a lot of cars on it because it's like stupid expensive. And it's got a lot of like long straightaways where you can, you have like max visibility about what's coming up. There might be times that I have allegedly, allegedly, allegedly maybe hit like 130. Um, right here. It, it's very fun. <laughs> I told Connor that I was like, you know, we were going like allegedly 130 back there. And he's like, no, we weren't. And I was like, we're going like 90 right now. And he's like, whoa. And then I was like, you don't know anything about cars because you don't drive. So I learned that in addition to like police radio and like radar scanners, which I knew about, some people will paint their cars in like anti-radar paint, which yes. is like not a thing that whoa. I knew existed. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a certain kind of paint that like supposedly makes your car invisible to radar. And like, That's like when they like point crazy. the radar gun at it, it can't get a reading on how fast you're going. So they will do that in order to win. Also, like sometimes you will have a spotter car who's not officially or maybe even several spotter cars at various locations around your proposed route Mm -hmm. that are not officially like doing the race, but they're literally just there to like... They're in your team. They're like, they're like your eye on the sky kind of person where they're like, all right, there's like a traffic collision coming up on like I-70. You're going to want to reroute to the 295 express overpass or whatever. They're like Christina Ricci and the boy and the monkey in Speed Racer. Just like that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is a very fun quote, which I could not find who it was attributed to, but it's fun enough that I want to include it anyway. Cannonball Run is very controversial. There's always like huge like press coverage whenever like there's a new record. Mm -hmm. And then of course there's people who are like, yeah, no, they shouldn't be doing this. Like people drive their families on those roads. Uh, And so, so the quote is, safety is paramount for a number of reasons. Obviously, if you get in an accident, that's going to significantly slow you down. <laughs> like, it's going to significantly affect your final well, time. Yeah, you can't do the run yeah. if you're being unsafe. Really? Would? So over the course of the last, what would that be, like 40 plus years, there have been several attempts at the Cannonball Run. The most recent record is 25 hours, 39 minutes. There's also a diesel record because diesel <laughs> is different. Uh-huh. That record is 28 hours and 30 minutes. Okay. There are several motorcycle records. That obviously takes a lot longer than most recent motorcycle record is 35 hours six minutes mm-hmm. that was in april of 2019 they completed it on a 2012 bmw equipped with a 15 gallon aux auxiliary fuel tank so an extra fuel tank radar detector and they had the radar absorbing paint okay there's also been several electric vehicle uh cannonball run completions i think to kind of i think like electric vehicles have like um like a brand identity problem right yeah. where it's like oh they're for like rich nerds and cities who are never going to yeah. go for 40 miles per hour anyway. <laughs> and obviously we need electric vehicles to be cooler than that because we need, so. we need to stop using fossil fuels to get around because we're going to run out of them. So there have been several electric vehicle cannonball runs beginning actually even before the official cannonball run. Because again, if you think about it, this is like a cross country thing. Like people have been wanting to go cross country since before they did an official thing about it. Yeah. So actually in this case, in 1968, so three years before 
for the first official Cannonball Run. Mm. There was a great transcontinental electric car race held between student groups at Caltech and MIT. So East Coast versus West Coast. In this case, they were just, they weren't racing. They were just trying to prove that they could build an electric vehicle that could make it from New York to to LA or vice versa. Uh, So Caltech won the great transcontinental electric car race uh, with a corrected time of 210 hours, three minutes. So a little different. Yeah, it's a little different. A lot of room for improvement. (laughs) At the end of 2020, a group uh, of dudes lowered the EV record, not from 210, because there had been several before that. They hold the current EV record of 44 hours and 26 minutes. Okay. Yeah. In a Porsche. It's Porsche's electric vehicle. Yeah. It's an electric Porsche. Oh, the, the Taycan, the Taycan YTV. The Taycan, yeah. <laughs> I wish. Oh, I wish. Yeah. The Porsche Taycan. It had a large battery and it had massaging seats. See, this is why oh. they have the rich nerd brand problem. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and then more recently, the big thing is uh, the autonomous driving cannonball run. Whoa. So obviously everybody who's working on a self-driving car wants to prove that they're self-driving car can drive from all across the entire country and not kill you or anybody else. The current record there was set in 2016 and it was with a Tesla Model S whose autopilot function was engaged 97.7% of the 2800 mile journey. If you can imagine, at first it sounds strange, and then you realize it actually makes a lot of sense. The record, you know, usually it gets set, and then it's held for like maybe a few years, maybe a couple years until somebody else improves on that time. Uh huh. Especially now that it's been cut down into like the twenty, like the twenty hours space, like that's hard to improve. Like you're about improvements of minutes, right? Yeah. But it was actually broken several times in the year 2020, a huge uptick from previous years, and that was because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. So oh. people are at home; they've got nothing else to do. They're going slowly insane, and then they <laughs> they realize, hey, no one's on the road. <laughs> no one's going to and from work. Oh. Nobody's really traveling. Oh, man. There's way less people on the road. There's also way less cops on the road because since there's less traffic and there's less traffic fatalities, they're trying to keep cops elsewhere um, so that, you know, cops don't get COVID and spread COVID-19, I guess. I don't know. I'm making guess about that. (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So over the course of 2020, this record that usually took like a couple of years or a few years to improve upon just got kept like was like getting broken every month. So in April, 2020 it was broken down to 26 hours 38 minutes and then in May 2020 it was broken to 25 hours 39 minutes wow and then in June again at 25 hours 55 minutes and then finally as I said to August 2020 25 hours 39 minutes where it stands now Zam. it's mostly like I said like mostly the cars are performance vehicles so Mercedes Audis Ferraris yeah. two things I want to say to like wrap this up the June 2020 record uh, was a Ford Mustang. So that was a muscle car. Uh-huh. But the this is very, very good. It was uh, one dude, which is absolutely insane. So he drove for 25 hours and 55 minutes straight. But I cannot imagine. But since he didn't have to have uh, he didn't have other drivers who were in the car with him, he took out all the seats in this Ford Mustang. So it's so and he, light. Not only that, but he well, I guess in a way uh, he took out all the seats and then he replaced them with holding tanks for like more fuel tanks. So his oh. car was full of 130 gallons of gasoline. Wow. Oh, my God. 
car. So that he only had to make one fuel stop the entire way. And he only had to make one wrong move and crash and completely explode. You send a fireball that could be seen (laughs) from space. Yeah, look, it's a very safe race, okay? Literally everyone should do it. And then the other thing I was going to say was that the May 2020 record breaker, they drove a an Audi S6, which is a fancy car. Yeah. Uh, but they like in like what feels like a fucking like Scooby gang move. They <laughs> redesigned the exterior to make it look like a Ford Taurus police car. Okay. Like, you know, like the like the non like SUV police cars, like the yeah. iconic police car. Yeah. They made this Audi, this like $80,000 car look like one of those. So that they wouldn't be caught speeding. Yes. So that it would look like a police car. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so that they could <laughs> speed through a, a pandemic ravaged country. That's so good. <laughs> Don't look at so, me. Yeah. I'm one of you. <laughs> so, Ellie, yes. I think we have our summer 2022 plans. Oh my gosh. Yes. Let's <laughs> cannibal run. But if we want to practice, we can do the bandit run, which is a smaller one between Texarkana, which, you know, is in like the upper uh, east corner of Texas and to Atlanta. Uh, and that one uh, follows the uh, path from the movie Smokey and the Bandit. So that's which like a road the same, buddy movie. The same yeah. director as Cannibal <laughs> so, Run. Holy shit. Yeah, that guy loves cars. So anyway, so we'll practice. Well, summer 2021, we practice with the bandit run. Summer 2022, we fucking cannonball run it, baby. Uh, It's going to be great. Um, Incredible. Can I give you your points? Yes, please. Um, Okay, so we've got just the sheer mention of Cher and her and that hit Gypsies, Tramps, Thieves. That's that's two points. Then I've put the the cannibal run was real. Four points. Um, (laughs) Real? I've put... Should that be the title? The Cannonball Run is real? Real? It threw me for a loop. I added one point because uh, I went to Rodondo Beach with my mom and dad and had a lovely time. Aww. Um, and then I've minus one here because in the, in talking about highways, you're talking, you are talking about how America got super gross. Yeah. But in terms of just like being covered in roads. But then I put underneath, <laughs> it is impressive because she is big. So I added that she's, point back. She's big, folks. <laughs> uh, five points for the full name of the race, <laughs> which was, can you remind me? Oh, oh, you're talking about the full name of the race? Yeah. You're talking about that Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Sea to Shining Sea gets me. <laughs> that's good. And then I put 170 miles per hour. That's so damn fast. Plus two. Yes. Robot driving is spooky though, so minus two. Yeah, no one likes it. But then... Well, Muskrat likes it. Yeah. But then plus one back for redesigning the exterior to look like a police car because that's so yeah. good. Oh yeah. my God. Colton got 18 for team host. Thank you, Colton. I appreciate it so much um and chelsea got 14 points for team wildcard well, which means that current standing is chelsea is on 192 and ellie is on 191 oh <gasps> and you said you weren't gonna pull some bullshit Clash i'm, I'm kidding I'm fucking bullshit. That's I, you didn't you did not at all you did not at all i'm Thank messing you. with you but that Damn. is so close i'm shaking it's he it's getting hot in here yeah it is and we're only halfway through the year not even well Colton, thank you so much. What a wonderful topic that you brought. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me as always. This was your topic debut, no? Yes, it was. I have another I could tell sometime, but I've got a a lot more work to do on it. Fantastic. We'll we'll, we'll keep it in our pocket. Is it about James Cameron? (laughs) Uh, No, this one is about Clifford Brooks. Um, No. (laughs) 
the big red dog? Yes. Albert Brooks' <laughs> little-known big brother was actually a large red canine. <laughs> well, I would have loved if you were like, yeah, like, and in 1984, Albert Brooks, like, adopted a dog that he was told was the run of litter, of the litter. Little did he know that dog would grow to be as big as a house, and that dog was named Clifford. Yeah. <laughs> Einstein. Um... You think you're a small dog, Clifford, but you're not. <laughs> Where can people find you? Where can people find me? Yeah. Oh my goodness, me? Uh, well, I'm not on any social medias except Instagram, which you can find me at Colton Clamhands, I think is my name on Instagram. I believe it is. I don't actually know. Uh, you can also find me, my primary, you can find me on Letterboxd, where I am Colton, just Colton. You wow. got Colton? Uh, you'll click on my account, you'll read my bio, you'll see it's an Albert Brooks Stan account. Um, <laughs> and that's actually what it says in my bio. Um, and yeah, and you can find me there and see what movies I'm watching. Um, also, awesome. if you ever run into me on Overwatch Online, my username is Albert Brooks. Is it? Is it really? It is on Overwatch on PC. I play Amazing. under Albert Brooks. And I can't tell you the kick I get every time I see play of the game, Albert Brooks. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where you guys can find me. Where can people find you if you're playing Overwatch Online? <laughs> if I'm playing Overwatch Online uh, or Animal Crossing New Horizons, which is what I'm mostly playing, uh, yeah. you, you would find me at Luxrara. But if it's anywhere else online, you're going to find me at Chelsea Harfoot wherever those internets are sold beautiful and you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Maney on Twitter and you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram Facebook Pinterest Patreon and you can find our website at thosetwogirls.club if you want to send us a message if you want to say something fun we did actually get a message through our website the other day and it was a random jumble of letters but I still enjoyed reading it so do send Aww. us your messages <laughs> that's, um, so, that's so sweet and if you could give us a review on iTunes that would be really really helpful or take a screenshot of you listening to this episode and tag us on social media and all of that good stuff thank you guys so much for listening and this week i don't know maybe go learn something hey colton yes chelsea do you think that tonight you could do me a favor <laughs> oh uh well let's see i can i'm sure i can pencil something in what would you like could you keep it loose keep it tight say your prayers at night amen <laughs> <laughs> and also with you 